1: Hello, you're very welcome to this episode of Voices from the Archives. I'm Morris O'Keefe. On the 10th of April 1923, Liam Lynch was shot and killed while he was trying to escape from the Free State troops. This happened on the Knockmealdown Meal Down mountains in South Tipperary. And this year marks the 100th year since he was shot. So, in remembering the man and his family, you will hear the voices of Boti's nephew and niece later in the podcast you will hear peggy Lyne, who i visited in killarney her mother was liam lynch's sister and i was very fortunate to be shown letters that she had which were written by liam lynch while he was on the run but first i visited the home of dear mcmullins in broadford in county limerick his mother was liam lynch's sister and when i visited him I first asked him to tell me a little bit about the old family home and his background. I grew up in uh, Liam Lynch's old house. So, uh, your mother, who was Liam's uh, sister, um, now you, you wouldn't. When were you born? I was born in 1921. No, so you really wouldn't have remembered... I wouldn't have known him at all, I wouldn't. Yeah.
2: He was shot, I mean, I was only two when he was shot, would say. Yeah. So I wouldn't have known him, but I would have known the rest of the family well, of course.
1: Yeah. What was it like in that house? Uh, obviously a very strong Republican oh, house. Very much so,
2: very much so, and um, <clears throat> a very Gaelic household and a nationalist household always. He, was a, he, he never went beyond national, edu- national school education, but he was gifted because um, he, he was an apprentice to the hardware trade and served in Mitchellstown, Millstreet, and Formoy. But I think in Formoy it was there he really got his calling because he was in digs with a number of other lads, bank trucks and shop assistants and teachers and all that. and. In their spare time, they seem to have made a special study of the guerrilla war tactics. Wherever they got the books for them could be the Boer War. But it was there, that was the breeding ground of the, the guerrilla warfare, which won the War of Independence.
1: I asked Dermot about Liam's brother, Tom, who was ordained a priest and was later sent to Australia. But while he was studying in Mount Mallory... And Liam was on the run; he was writing to him, and he, and Tom had held on to all of these letters later in Australia. I know Tom well, uh, he was a priest in the
2: the Diocese of Australia he was uh, He got his education in uh, Mount Mallory, ordained and thoroughless and Possibly he was sent abroad on account of his brother, I don't quite know. Actually, I went to see his grave in Australia some years ago, Father Tom Lynch's
1: grave. He's buried in Australia. Well, it would suggest to me that uh, that Liam and Tom were very close. Very close. I
2: think especially that, that Tom was in Australia. Tom kept all the letters, you will have noticed. That uh, he was an Australian, he felt he could open his heart to him, like you know, that it wasn't at home. Why this letter is so so
1: surprisingly interesting is, it's it's written after the truce. On the twenty second of the August of August nineteen twenty one. I was born on the nineteenth of August nineteen twenty one,
2: just right to the same day. Now, the truce. Was uh, came about on the eleventh of July, nineteen twenty-one. This would be what three, four weeks, five weeks before this. And because I'm, I'm surprised in reading this that he was captured, because the extraordinary thing about Liam Lynch was he was never caught. He was never in jail except one time. He was at a big meeting in Cork City in which Terence McSweeney was involved, and the whole place were arrested, and they, they were all lodged in Cork jail. But they did, they, the British didn't know who they had, and they allowed him to escape. It was the only time he was ever captured or saw inside of a jail.
1: But in this, uh, the, the content of this letter now suggests that he was captured as well, but uh, for a very, very short time. For a
2: very short time. I, this, I know why you're like, this was more or less a matter of principle. I demanded the right as an Irish army officer to my own transport without an enemy permit as well as they do without our permits. But he was talking very stiff there, because the truce had been in full swing. In other words, it was during peacetime he said that. And he stood up for it. I can see his point.
1: Dermot points out that Michael Collins and himself weren't uh, real enemies. He didn't dislike him in any way. He says in another one of the letters that
2: Mick and myself could see eye to eye. I'm not reading, you know, because there's a lot of letters there, but that was in one of them. So then, I mean, enemies—I don't know, like I don't think you know how would I say it? Like I think Lynch couldn't hate anybody as such. He had, no, he never, he never had any bad language to say in against Collins. He hadn't really, you know. You know the cause of the civil war, the direct cause was this. Lynch managed to hold the army together. The army now is distinct from the politicians who split on the vote, but he managed to hold the army together, that's the volunteers, by every means in his power, by meeting after meeting, by every possibly he could do, until at one meeting a man called General Tom Barry, Cotman, stood up and proposed a motion. That the fight against England be resumed. This was out of the blue and it was discussed and uh, there was a vote taken on it and the voting, the voting was 113 against 118. 118 were against reopening the war with Britain. 113 were in favour of reopening the war with Britain. No, the 113 who were in favour right of reopening the war with Britain left the meeting in a high dudgeon, went off, took over the four courts, and uh, in defiance of the treaty. So Liam was not a man for, he was not a, a man of, he was a man, a man of peace, say, really, and uh, what he felt about taking, declaring war on England again, that there wasn't much point in it. Liam believed firmly and has stated that England was defeated, you would want to go back into the point of that. Again you go back to Fermoy and the, the guerrilla tactics of this group of young men in Fermoy led by Lynch. Lynch decided that the best the best defense and war is is intelligence, military intelligence. And the idea being to to know what the enemy was going to do and to keep what you were going to do from the enemy. But Lynch Order, the first thing Lynch Order was that every RIC barracks in the First Southern Division, that is the the, the, the nine brigadier be demolished, put out of action, because the RIC barracks were the eyes and ears and arms of the British government. They were the people who gathered the information and sent it up to Dublin Castle and of course it was a great thing, Lynch was a a good tactician because he said to all the different groups your job now at the moment is get rid of your RIC barracks, burn it down, get rid of it. Which they did and incidentally kill Malach which they failed to take in the Fenians was taken in 1920 but all the RIC barracks in the First Southern Division were put out of action which means that the British hadn't a notion what they were doing they were like bats and they had no no information whatever whereas Lynch had loyal men everywhere in the post office in all government departments in the English jails in the English army and the, it the old um, officers used to say that uh, any order that was issued Lynch had it and he sent inside two hours my yes so that We'd say Lynch knew exactly when there, there would be the British army would be traveling from one barracks to another with supplies or whatever, but the british didn't the British did not know Lynch knew when to attack. The British could not attack because it was an
1: invisible army They just came out of the mist and disappeared. And Deermitt had a very good story to tell about Liam's brother Jack. Funny story about Jack. Now, he was a funny one in the family he funny one I mean, like somebody
2: said all their wars are merry and all their songs are sad but um, Jack was a man too he enjoyed both wars war of independence and civil war but um, Jack was in jail this time when in the British in the war of independence and a army officer came out and he was looking for somebody who would uh, put a couple of thousand cabbage plants into the ground there were uh, roughage for the, uh, the 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 army of course, and for the prisoners cabbage plants. and Jack put his hand up and he said, You need go no the father son he said i'm I'm here, I'm a farmer, I know all about it you need't needn't even come to inspect me. I know you're busy. He was well able to flow. <laughs> it will be done'll take me about a week How many? T- five thousand cabbage plants about a week. when you come back, you'd be delighted to see it. So time passed and at the end of the week the officer came back to inspect the work and Jack had, Jack had planted all the cabbage plants all right but he had planted them all upside down. He had put the heads into the ground and the roots sticking up. <laughs> it. Jack says, that's called twisting the
1: lion's tail, he said to me. You know, getting your own back at the end. <laughs> Another clip from Dermot's interview has a very good description of the importance the common among played during the civil war and the fight for freedom. The women were marvellous, of course. They were all in the common
2: among and they took dispatches and they presided at meetings, uh, collected funds and all that. But I think it was the, 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 um, the big ambush at Thon Bannon. An extraordinary thing happened there. It was, uh, there were 50 men from Cork Number 2 involved and 50 men from Kerry Number 2 involved. Clanbannon is roughly between Mill Street and Kentork up here. Now, they had to walk to Clan bannon first. Mm. And they were from around here now. They would have gone there maybe 20, 30 miles walking. And the same with the Kerry. And anyway, when they arrived, the women had to feed them. Remember we, they in the open countryside. No shops, no supermarkets, and none. And the women gave them porridge for their breakfast and tea, which would that, would be, that was okay. And uh, they still, the fighting was still on. There, there was, this was 100 men, and they were spread out about a quarter of a mile on both sides of the road. I can imagine that, 100 men at both sides of the road, they had, um, of course, you know, I, I, we didn't mention the attack on the Mallow, Mallow barracks. They had, they got 11 machine guns on the attack in Mallow barracks. And there were three of them at Lundberg. Now, well, I'm just coming to this. The women fed them anyway in the morning and coming on in the middle of the day, it wasn't too bad because they gave them the farmer's three-course dinner, spuds, bacon and cabbage. That was grand. But in the evening, the, the, the battle lasted all day. Clonbanham was a huge ambush. Huge ambush. And um, at evening time, the women had to go and bake bread for the evening tea. And they felt that it was very poor grub for these men who had been out in the open all day, and uh, they were thinking, could I have something to go with the bread which they had baked? And that minute, a hen started to crow outside to one of the houses, and they had their answer, eggs! Yes. And all eggs at that time were free-range. <laughs> so. And instead they didn't fry the eggs or boil them or scramble them, they just got buckets and filled buckets with eggs and sent them out to the troops. And one old soldier said to me that um, one of the finest meals he ever had was the evening tea he got in Bannon, freshly baked bread, scalding hot tea and raw eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I so, think a picture of the times, you know.
1: <laughs> so this is
2: what kept them going. It would be towards the end, it would be about the end of 1921. They they didn't do too well that day. It was an ambush that didn't quite go according to plan, as you could imagine, when well, they were at it all day. They eventually ran out of ammunition and they had to pull out. And most of them had to face a, a walk of 30, 40, 50 miles home.
1: In 2005, I met Peggy Lyne, She lived in Killarney and she told me when I called that her uncle was the General Liam Lynch and that her father, Jack, was a brother of Liam's. And she was in the possession of all these wonderful letters that had been written by Liam while he was on the run. But I first asked Peggy about her background. Uh, You were born near the Glen of Aherlow, that's in, in County, County, County Tipperary. Bord, yeah.
3: Bordering Limerick.
1: Bordering Limerick, yeah.
3: Yes, I was born there in the same home as Liam Lynch and I lived there, my family and my father and mother, we lived there for two or three years until then my father bought a farm about four miles away where we went to live and in the home then his other brother Jim stayed with the mother in their old home.
1: And when you were growing up and listening to your father talk about Liam, and I'm sure he did, um, he must have told you um, some interesting stories about him, in his youth. In, in, his, I, youth. in
3: his youth. Well, I suppose, um, I don't remember too many things about his youth, really. It was more or less talking about him being involved in the volunteers, and um, when he went to work for my... In Barry's and fromage, it was a hardware business, and it was when he went there, and he he um, he got to know a lot. A number of the Cork volunteers had accepted um, to parade, and to um, he used to train the boys. He got them into what would I say? Got them involved in the movement. His brother then, who had been just ordained the year before that, had gone to Australia. And um, he had lots of letters got from Liam. Liam would write him almost every week, telling him what, how they were progressing. And Father Tom kept all those letters. So when he came home in 1950 from Australia, he brought all his letters home. And they were left at home to my father in Nacadé. So it was through reading those that we learned really about his life.
1: A great admirer of the General Liam Lynch was a namesake of his, Liam Lynch, and he lived in Knocknagashel. And on the day that I visited Peggy Lyne, Liam came with me. He was visually impaired for quite a number of years. Uh, but he had a great knowledge of Liam's movement during the campaign. Didn't they have a meeting at one stage? Tom Barry and... Um, was Devil Valera there? Yeah, that,
0: the, that was on the 24th of uh, March... Um, we'll say twenty-fourth uh, 25th, or 26th of March. That would be a fortnight prior to Liam being shot dead. There was a meeting in the Nair Valley. Uh, Frank Aiken was there, Tom Barry, <coughs> Eamon De Valera, and General Liam Lynch. And they met in the Nair Valley, and there were three proposals put forward uh, that uh, to, to end the Civil War. One was that they would work within government to achieve Irish unity. The second one was that the government of Ireland would not have to take a note of allegiance to the British Crown, which Liam felt any Irishman with any guts wouldn't do in the first place anyway. And uh, there was another proposal there then that they'd meet to, uh, to discuss these issues. But at this stage of the game, of the, of the fight, it was going on now for about eight months, lasted only ten months, uh, the Free State Army and the Free State Government believed they were in a position that they did not have to negotiate and that the end of the civil war <coughs> was in sight and that it would end only on their terms and not on any terms negotiated by Liam Lynch or Tom Barry or Frank Aiken or another man by the name of Sean Hyde and some other people. There were seven there at that meeting altogether, but that meeting fell down and broke down because the government in Dublin knew that they had the Republican forces defeated, but not Liam. Liam retreated that evening, a few evenings after that, he retreated to a safe house in the Knockmilldown Mountains, which had been specially designed Uh, with an underground passage or some type of passage had been raided unsuccessfully many times but they were always able to escape because they had secret passages in this house and the neighbourhood was very friendly to them I think some of them were Prendergast and Lions and other small farmers very, very friendly uh, to the Republican cause and Liam felt very safe there at the foot of the knock down mountains But Liam,
1: that last meeting uh, that they had they, they possibly could have stopped the, the civil war at they that the time. They probably
0: did. They were evenly yeah. split to a to, to majority decision, not to end it. But why why didn't Liam Lynch give in at that stage? Liam Lynch would not give in. Liam Lynch set out the day he stood in the bridge at Fermoy to achieve an Irish Republic. He would have never been the Liam Lynch I knew if he had given in at any point in his life. But he must have known at that he time probably, he was beaten. He you know? did, but he put yep. all the proposals forward for to have a desire to have an unhonourable surrender you know he wouldn't he wanted to have a the end the war like on um, what would I call it conditional circumstances
3: we have a book it's on the life of Robert Emmet whom I think he molded himself on oh, and uh, he had been reading that book when he was in Fermoy I believe and in one of his letters it's mentioned my The book on Robert Emmett I'd been reading was mislaid, but after was whoever packed his case and his belongings, it was found, and it was in the family, and we still have it. That book would be 100 years old now, next year. It was printed in um, 1903.
1: I asked Peggy if Liam had a girlfriend. He was
3: 29. That was pretty 29. Yeah. and a very attractive-looking man, I believe. Was he? Yeah. And some people said... He did have a girlfriend from Mitchellstown. her name is Bridie Keyes, and she worked in the Irish Hospital Sweepstake in Dublin. But when she used to come home to Mitchellstown, they used to meet there sometimes. But his friends told him that she used to have the sacred hat lamp lighting in her room and praying and making no venus that he would be safe. But it seems that he said in one letter to Father Tom, I have no intention of getting married or even thinking of marriage, she said. My first love is Ireland and until Ireland is free, that is my mission.
1: It was really fascinating when Peggy showed me the letters that Liam Lynch had written while he was on the run. So I was anxious to know if she would go through them with me and maybe read from one or two.
3: There were other letters that Tom got from Liam, I'm sure, coming up to the last month. But he didn't keep those. He felt it wouldn't be safe, you know, to have those in his property. But being in Australia, a young priest, uh, he could be in trouble, you know. But I read from part of one, I think this would be his last letter. He said, I've been very anxious for some time past to drop a note to you. I am pleased to have got the present opportunity. I'm afraid I could not meet you before you left Ireland on your long mission to Australia. But now I have some hope of seeing you in the near future. Maybe perhaps to arrange when I can see you. And then he says, the disaster of this war is sinking to my very bones. When I count the loss of Irish manhood and the general havoc of civil war, we have set ourselves to the task and, if necessary, must fight to the bitter end. The IRA, most of whose members have already gone um, in, in the successful war against the common enemy, have now been hopelessly let down by their former comrades. It is bad enough to being formerly of IRA if they only fought it clean, but they have stooped so low and they have stooped to lower methods than the British, including much gangs, murder gangs, and evil propaganda. I do hope I shall live through this, that future generations will have written for them the full details of all the treacherous acts. Who could have dreamt that all our hopes could have been so blighted?
1: That, That was Liam's brother, was it? Yeah. yeah,
3: that was yeah that was from Liam to Father Tom.
1: And Father Tom, he was the owner of all those letters. That's right. Yes.
3: Yeah. Once he went to Australia, then we haven't many letters. Most of mm-hmm. those letters were written to him while he was in um, studying for the priesthood in Ireland, mm-hmm. and then afterwards, when he went to Australia, he didn't write so many letters. Well, he didn't get the opportunity. The last couple of months, I presume.
1: Of course, he was. He must have been under fierce pressure at the time. And And uh, we have the the final letter, and you also have a map, which is very interesting (coughs) too. They used that map on the mountain, didn't they? The the Knock Meal down. Yes,
3: you can see where where they were. um, It's marked in red ink where they were surrounded from all sides.
1: And this letter that Peggy read for me was from Frank Agan and it really explains everything that happened on the day that he was shot.
3: This letter was sent from Frank Egan to Liam's mother and um, with sympathy on the death of Liam. I was with Liam, he said, when he was wounded. Six of us all together were billeted at the foot of the Nachmill Downs near Gorton Bridge. The alarm came at 4am that morning and we made for the mountains to cross to Mount Millery. But it was a much bigger roundup than we expected. There must have been at least 6,000 staters on the warpath that day. In dividing one column, we ran into another on the mountain. There was a running fight for about 20 minutes. They with rifles and we with revolvers. Mm When the firing suddenly ceased, then one shot rang out and Liam fell. We could hardly believe him when he said he was hit. Then we started to carry him off, and we were saying the act of contrition, and he repeated it. He was suffering badly. He was shot through the body. Um, And in carrying him, it hurt him very much. He begged several times to leave him down. And um, we said, we left him down. He gave us his pocketbook and we took his gun and we left him. To leave him was the hardest thing any of us could do. I was last leaving, having been carrying his feet. I was afraid to even say goodbye to Liam, lest it would dishearten him. None of us could understand why he out of six of us was hit or why we were not all killed. It was just God's will, I suppose. The fight took place on a mountain as bare as a billiard table. Sean Hyde had him by the hand. There was a couple of hundred shots fired while we were carrying him and afterwards, until we got out of range, we came under the concentrated fire of sixty rifles and machine guns. We sighted ten more columns that day and had to fight with one party of them in a house which we thought we might get something to eat, but they were there for us. The press over there were not altogether wrong in their in their boast. I can it's not very clear that letter. On Leem death was a great blow to the chances of success coming at the time but they are quite wrong if they think that they have heard the last of the IRA. The national position is rapidly becoming very like that of 1916, and um, th- that's it. Possibly a
0: little bit there that they, they, they were armed but only revolvers, that is what I have heard. And when the firing started, really, they went into a little gorge where the water had cut away, you know, and they had cover for a few hundred yards. And it was when they emerged from this gorge, six of them were possibly in full view of the State Army, Free State Army. And it was then that I believe that their intention was to get Liam Lynch, because just one shot rang out and hit Liam Lynch. They didn't. They took the messages from the, Liam's letters, pocketbook, and revolver, as Peggy has stated, and moved away. And as far <coughs> as I could ascertain, there was no more uh, that could have app- apprehended him because there was thousands of Free State soldiers. that wanted Liam Lynch dead. They got him. Uh, the officer that shot Liam was a Lieutenant Clancy, and he moved up. And I think here is where Liam showed his true colors and his true bravery. He said, I am Liam Lynch, General Liam Lynch. And I think, yeah, I'm the man you want. Uh, the officer bent down, had a look at his wound, and dressed him. He put a medical, um, he applied medical help to, to, to the wound. I was surprised that the army didn't have a, a stretcher or anything. They must have been prepared for little, ba- very little battle. They got two trench coats that put the rifles through the sleeves of the coat. They brought... Liam down the mountains, he was, again, as the letter is already saying, in severe pain down the mountains, until they got a mule and a cat and put him into the, his cat body into the cat and escorted it, I think, into Clanmill Hospital. I'm not too sure if it was Clonmill, where he died. Liam had two or three requests to make in life. One, he gave the officer, Lieutenant Clancy, his fountain pen. And the last request was that he would be buried with his old lion friend Mick Fitzgerald in Kilcumper graveyard. Those requests were carried out. Mighty bitterness had gone through all the country during those years, but somebody in the Free State Government must have recognised the great part Liam Lynch played in the fight for Irish freedom, when he asked them to lower the flags, to half-mast, in the Free State barracks. That was, I think, some little tribute to one powerful, great gentleman of Irish history.
1: Well, we've come to the end of this podcast, but I'd like to say that the letters had been treasured by the family and not previously seen in public. And I suggested to Peggy that they might consider allowing historians and academics to have access to them. And after some discussion, it was decided that I would bring them to Dr. Noel Cassan at the National Library in Dublin. And he was delighted to see them. And of course, they're now in the National Library and they can be accessed by historians and academics for future study and it will throw a light on the complex and brave individuals who sacrificed their lives in Ireland's cause. I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.